Hey, my mic's working this week. <laughs> I can hear myself. All right. Yeah. Anyway, um, some of you remember last week we, I forgot to unmute uh, the microphone on the, um, on our live stream there. And, and I did it again this week. But this time I got a text message in the first song, like probably the first line. Unmute your mic. So, thank you, because I totally forgot. But anyway, so we're good. So, um, in just a few minutes, we'll, we'll be looking at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses uh, 21 through 24. And then we will look over at uh, uh, Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. If you'd like to mark that in your Bible, if you're using the Bible app, uh, that's already in there. If you're using uh, our website or if you're on our website taking notes, uh, that uh, should be in there as well. But uh, just to let you know where we're going this morning. I can't uh, predict the future. I know that may be shocking to some of you. Um, I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. But one thing I can say with absolute certainty is that if you are involved in the local church, you will have a conflict with another person at some point or time. That person may wrong you intentionally or they may wrong you unintentionally. In all likelihood, this, this conflict will not involve the violation of the law, but it is a possibility that it will. I also know this, there is a high likelihood that you will at some point wrong another believer or someone will wrong one of your family members or a friend who will then tell you what happened. Part of our issue in the church as we continue this series through um, the church and what the church looks like in, in the scripture, part of our issue is that we, we fail to deal with conflict biblically. And for this reason, we often struggle as Christians and we struggle to maintain an appropriate gospel witness in our community. We would do well to remember that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's vital for us to obey that commandment, but obedience will not just happen automatically. We don't just automatically obey what we read in scripture. It requires biblical understanding and it requires constant effort on our part. Every single relational conflict or misunderstanding is an opportunity for us to learn more of who Christ is. When someone treats us offensively, we can remember that Christ was treated offensively by people, but he still loved them. When we say, well, don't they care about my feelings? We can remember that Jesus knew what that was like. Did I show someone kindness to only have them go behind my back and lie about me? Well, Jesus knew what that was like as well. Did my friends deserve me when I needed them at the most precious time in my life? Well, Jesus' friends deserted him at his trial and his crucifixion. Have I been betrayed by someone that was so close to me? Judas betrayed Jesus. Maybe you feel mistreated or unloved or unappreciated. Betrayed by a family member or, or another Christian. We can use those situations in our life to draw close to Christ. Who loves us even though our sin 
put him on the cross. How do you deal with conflict in your life? How do you handle conflict? Whether it's a family member, whether it's another believer, or whether it's those just out in the world, how we handle it will either advance God's kingdom or it will hinder the advancement of God's kingdom. Others will either see Christ in us and be drawn to him, or they will see a sinful, selfish person who claims to be a Christian and be repelled by it. Can I just be real honest with you? Just, just be honest. Our church has a spotted history of handling conflict. That's just the way it is. And, and you may want to debate me with that. You can do that all you want. But, but I know the history. We have a spotted history of how to handle conflict appropriately. And we've suffered because of it. And as your pastor, I want to teach us how it is that we can biblically resolve conflict, not for the sake of our church, but for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our community. If you're not in our church yet, or you end up listening to this sermon online at some point in time, I still hope that you can gain from this message as well, because it's how it is that we can biblically resolve conflict for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that said, I would ask that if you are willing and able, let's go ahead and stand uh, out of respect for God's word as we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, and then we'll flip over to 18 verses 15 through 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Matthew 5, 21 through 24. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. It's not an easy message to preach. I believe it's one that you, you've led me to weeks ago as, as we laid it out and decided the direction to go as I preached this series through the church. But it doesn't make it easy. Sometimes it's hard to preach your word. But God, I pray that I would faithfully do so this morning. That my ears would hear it. And that everybody else is, that, that listens to this message would hear it. And not only that we would hear it, Lord, but that we would respond to it in a way that's biblical. To know how it is that we're to handle biblical conflict. How, how it is that we biblically handle conflict. 
pray that you bless us as a result of the hearing of your word. Let your saints listen this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I'm going to spend the majority of this message on what we should do if another believer has wronged us. I will also deal briefly with what we should do if we've wronged someone else, and then what to do if someone you know has been wronged. Off the outset, let me recommend author Ken Sand to you. He writes some good books to help with peacemaking and conflict resolution. One of those is The Peacemaker, as well as Peacemaking for Families, great book. And finally, he has a book called Resolving Everyday Conflict, which I'll uh, quote a couple times in this sermon this morning. They're all great books. I would encourage you to pick them up if you can. I want you to stop and think for a moment that someone in the church has deliberately wronged you. It may not be hard to imagine that, right? Perhaps that's already happened to you before. And maybe it was through gossip or or uh, some half-truths, or maybe it was something more serious. Some people have had Christians commit adultery with their spouse, or God forbid, we all have heard and know of stories where children have been preyed upon in the church. This morning, I want to first look at non-legal conflict and how it is that we deal with that, and then we will look at legal conflict, whether it's uh, civil or criminal, and... Uh, uh, whether the civil or criminal law has been violated and how it is that we should deal with that. So first we're going to look at non-legal conflict. Non-legal conflict. I want to say right up front that just because we are saying something is non-legal does not mean it's not serious. Okay? What, what I'm saying is that the government really has no concern in this matter because a law has not been broken. I've noticed that it's not always easy to determine if the person wronged you intentionally or whether they wronged you unintentionally. For example, some people are just spiritually or emotionally immature and uh, they're oblivious to other people's feelings. Maybe you know people like that. I will get to this a little bit later in the message, but let's for now say that you are fairly certain someone has intentionally wronged you. What should you do? How should you respond to that? Somebody's intentionally wronged you. What, what's our response to that? Well, that's a good question. That's what this sermon's going to set out to do. First, look to Christ. First, look to Christ. Now, I know that sounds obvious, right? But I also know what happens when we feel like we're wronged. It seems like all we see is red. That's because when we are wronged, the, what's obvious kind of goes out the window. Just, I don't care what's obvious. I've been wronged. What is the first thing we want to do when we've been wronged? Well, we want to react emotionally. In the book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, they point out that in any conflict, there are three possible responses. They are escape, attack, or make peace. If you react in the flesh, you will always escape or attack. That's just what you will do because that's how our flesh responds. i got to get out of this conflict or I'm going to attack you because you attacked me. And that's a problem because the conflict will never be resolved if we, if we just run away from it or if we attack. And we will not grow in Christ. If you look to Christ, you can take steps to actually make peace. And so I have five ways in which we can look to Christ to make peace. First, look to the glory of Christ. 
look to the glory of Christ. When we take time to look to the glory of Christ in resolving our conflict, it causes us to stop and ask him to help us glorify and please him in the midst of this conflict in our thoughts and in our deeds. You ever have conflict with someone and, and you say, Lord, before I respond, help me to glorify you in my thoughts, my words, my deeds. It's kind of hard then to, to punch them back, isn't it? In every relational conflict, you have your aim. And it should be to glorify Christ and bring about a peaceful resolution. I found so often that when we are in conflict, what often happens with us is we care more about self-glory than we care about Christ's glory when it comes to this conflict resolution. So look to Christ uh, and, and glorify Christ. Look to the glory of Christ. Secondly, look to the glory or look to the cross of Christ. Look to the cross of Christ. You see, the cross gives us basis of reconciliation and forgiveness. I love what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 tells us. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, in that day, the Jews and the Gentiles were hostile to one another. Paul goes on and says in verses 15 through 17 that, that through the cross, Christ has reconciled these formerly hostile groups to be one body, the church, to God. Just as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18 in the parable of the servant whose master gave him like $5 billion by today's standards, only to have that servant then go out and demand from a fellow servant who owed him $5,000. That cross is a reminder that God has indeed paid our $5 billion debt. So why is it that we are out there demanding from those that owe us far less? That's the whole point of that. Jesus wants me to forgive others just as I have been forgiven. You said, but pastor, you don't know what they said about me. You don't know, you don't know how bad they wronged me, pastor. I know this. It's never as bad as you've wronged the Lord. The cross of Christ is the basis for a reconciliation and forgiveness with the one that wrongs us. It's the basis for it. Thirdly, we must look to the body of Christ. We must look to the body of Christ. We look to the body of Christ as our basis to preserve unity. As Paul clearly taught, all believers are one body in Christ. So if the person who hurt me is a Christian and then I retaliate and I hurt them back, what have I gained in that? Nothing. I'm only hurting myself because we're members of the same body of Christ. And what is worse is I'm hurting Christ because he's the head of the body. You see what happens when we elevate preference and emotion above Christ? Our purpose can't be to get even, to tear the other person apart so that we can prove that we are right and that they are wrong. Our purpose must be to build one another up in Christ. But fourthly, we must look to the love of Christ. We must look to the love of Christ. The love of Christ is our supreme example of how to respond to the one that wrongs you. I had a pastor friend of mine remind me of this this week as I spoke to him about a wrong that was done to me. He encouraged me to not fight back, but to look to the love of Christ. Jesus 
loved me and he loves us and he sacrificed himself for us while we were yet sinners. Now that doesn't mean that we have to just sit back and endure all wrongs and, that come against us without ever confronting the one that wronged us. That's not what it's talking about. It does mean that love seeks the highest good of the one that's loved, which means sometimes we must correct that person or point out the blind spot that caused the wrong in the first place. However, our aim towards the one who wronged us should be to build them up in Christ by showing them the love of Christ. Lastly, we must look to the sovereignty of Christ. One thing that's very hard to bear in mind and keep at the forefront of our mind is, is that the sovereignty of Christ brought this trial into our life in the first place for his glory and for our good and even the good of the one that wronged you. Now let me be clear. The Lord is never responsible for sin. But still there are ways in which we cannot understand where he uses other people's sin for his glory and our good. And we rightly respond. We can see this, right, when Joseph's brothers in the Old Testament, out of hatred for Joseph, they absolutely hated him. They sell him into slavery. And then what happens? Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him and he spent the better part of his 20s in this Egyptian dungeon. But all through these wrongs that were done to Joseph, he still trusted in the sovereign goodness of God. And then years later, what does he say to his brothers? In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So when you've been wrong, stop and get this godly perspective on it by looking to the Lord. And then after, after you look to Christ, then we look to self. Look to Christ, then look to self. And this is hard. Because when someone has wronged us, the last thing that we want to do is look inward. I don't. It's not what I want to do. When someone hurts me or says something about me or is gossiping about me, it hurts. I want to look inside. Let me give you five areas this morning where we need to look to self and do a little heart check. First, did you offend? Did you offend? What I mean by this is, is to look for hidden causes for an offense on your part. Maybe you did something in the past that offended this person and you never made it right. Perhaps you never even had a chance to make it right because maybe you didn't know you defended them. But maybe, maybe you, could, you came across as arrogant or as abrasive or self-serving. Remember what James tells us in James 4, 1 and 2. He says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. If you previously offended this person that, that, that has now wronged you, it doesn't excuse their sin, but it may alter the equation just a bit. Because you can't be reconciled until you ask for forgiveness for your own sin. And so first, did you offend? Secondly, when you're looking at self, are you bitter? 
Are you bitter? There's a root of, is there a root of bitterness in your heart? Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. When someone wrongs us, it's so easy to become bitter. Right? And, and we become reactionary. Bitterness is a root. And if you've done any gardening or anything like that, you know that it's far easier to pull out a new plant than it is to dig out one that has deep roots and is growing for years. Bitterness has deep roots. And the root of bitterness doesn't just defile you. It defiles those around you. Especially those who are closest to you. So how do you know this? I've seen it. I've seen parents defile their kids with their own bitterness. I've watched bitterness absolutely destroy people and destroy churches. So ask yourself, am I bitter? Am I bitter about something? Thirdly, are you a gossip? Are you a gossip? Oh boy, I started meddling now, right? Are you a gossip? What I mean by this is when you've been wronged, it's so easy to go to other people and build your case by making yourself look absolutely innocent of everything, and you're the victim, and the wrongdoer is the evil villain. And that sometimes is the case. I'm not saying that you can't go to some trusted people for counsel, because, because I think we should do that. But you shouldn't be out there talking to everyone, like lighting up the internet and Facebook and everything else and, and the phone and the text messages and everything else and say, man, i got to tell you what this person did to me. Can you believe what they said? Yada, 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 yada. Making your case against that person. Are you a gossip? Fourthly, are you seeking reconciliation? Are you seeking reconciliation? We have to check our heart to see if we have this spirit of gentleness and reconciliation. If we want to correct those in sin, often we have to be gentle because our goal is to seek restoration and reconciliation and healing in their life. Proverbs 12, 18 tells us, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So often we can use our tongue just to hack someone to bits. I, I, I'm quick-witted. I used to just, you say something to me, and bam, I'd jab you right back real fast. We just chop people up with our tongue. Or you can listen, and instead use your tongue like a surgeon uses a scalpel to bring restoration and healing. So you have to ask yourself, am I seeking restoration? Am I seeking reconciliation? Number five, you ask yourself this, what does God want to teach you? What does God want to teach you? So often in these situations and conflict, God wants to teach us something. You know what I found? I found we always have room to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. You know those love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
We all need to grow in humility. We all need to depend on God more than we do uh, do right now in prayer. Every single conflict provides an opportunity to grow in godliness. So first we, we look to Christ. Then we look to self. And then we go to the person in a spirit of gentleness seeking reconciliation. We go to the spirit, we go to the person in a spirit of gentleness seeking reconciliation. Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Before you go to pursue peace, pray that the timing will be right and the setting will be right. Pray that you will be gracious and gentle and kind. Pray for the other person to be open to what the Lord wants to teach them in the situation. When you meet with the offender and ask questions to make sure that you understand their perspective and their feelings. You're not there to win an argument or to, to prove that you're right and that they're wrong. You're there to glorify and please God and to help your brother or sister grow in Christ. Give the person an opportunity to repent and change without putting them down or backing them into a corner where they will get defensive. Let them know that you're a sinner, just like they're a sinner and not a saint. Speak the truth, but do so in love. And there are two ways that I see people err pretty regularly when it comes to speaking the truth in love. First of all, they will exaggerate the point, right? So they speak in absolutes. I'm sure that you've, you've heard this happen constantly, yeah, especially if you have little kids around, right? So they speak in absolutes. You always or you never. That's not truthful. That's an absolute statement. Nobody always does anything. Nobody never. So don't do that. When we say we're fine, that's also not truthful. When we're not fine. We are so good at this. We're denying our hurt when we're hurt. And we, we minimize the seriousness of the other person's sin when we do that. None of that's truthful either. Joseph didn't minimize his brother's sin against him. Even though he had forgiven them, he spoke truthfully. He said, you meant evil against me, right? That's what he said to them. And so don't, don't minimize the truth. The second way we err is we speak the truth, but we don't do so in love. So we angrily blast the other person and we use the excuse, well, that's just how I feel. That's always a bad sign if you, if you end your conversation with, well, that's just how I feel. Well, sometimes I want to punch people in the face, but I don't go around punching people in the face because that's not loving. And neither is spewing our poison all over someone just because we're angry at them. Love does not use abusive speech that puts other people down. Love does not back the other person into a corner where they have to become defensive. Love seeks to build the other person up. Suppose the offender verbally attacks and criticizes or blames you. In that case, love does not return insult for insult but gives a blessing instead. It's a good idea for us to read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 before we go and talk with anyone. And remind ourselves what love actually looks like. And depending on the magnitude of the offense against you, if the offender does not repent, you may need to take another brother or sister with you. That's the principle we read in Matthew chapter 18. And if this offense is serious, then and there's still no repentance, at some point the elders of the church may need to tell it to the church and expel the offender from the church. 
which is what we see in Matthew 18, verse 17. However, throughout the process, your aim is never to win or prove that you were right and that they were wrong, but, but restoration and reconciliation against that person to, to get them back into the church, back into the fold, to restore the relationship for the good of that person and the good of the gospel. Now, I want to real quick address something in relation to the biblical office of pastors and elders. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to go in depth here because I'll have an entire sermon on this, but I think it's appropriate to address something before moving on in this message. Let me read Matthew 5, 19-21. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. I want to say two quick things here. First, pastor, elders should be protected from unfounded accusations. Pastors and elders should be protected from unfounded accusations. Leaders are natural targets for all kinds of things. And if they have their target on their back, and false accusations are allowed to be leveled against an elder or pastor, we're in trouble. They should never be tolerated. We live in a climate where I see pastors resigning and being fired left and right. Many because false accusations are being allowed to be leveled against them. I know pastors that have been, for crying out loud, because of their stance on masks, have been fired from their church. That's not sinful, your stance on masks. One serious accusation against an elder or pastor can bring down the entire church. Let me be as abundantly clear as I can. The Bible clearly tells us that an accusation against a pastor or elder should not even be entertained unless there is a basis for that accusation. In other words, unless there's sin involved, then the matter uh, must also have multiple witnesses. Then you bring the accusation against the pastor elder. You don't bring up a matter of personality differences or, or petty issues to others. You don't gossip about your elders or your pastors. The issue must be sin. And must be established by multiple witnesses. So in other words, we should never be entertaining unfounded accusations against elders to our itching ears. Be like, oh, I got to hear this. Oh, I got to hear what, what was said, what was done. Oh, boy, we got to get in on this. I have found often that accusations against elders and pastors gets leveled from the frozen chosen that don't want to change in the midst of a church. Amen. And that leads me to the second thing I want to make clear. Pastors and elders should be held publicly accountable for open sin. Yes, they must be protected from unfounded accusations, but if this accusation is verified by two or three Witnesses, It should be investigated carefully. And then the issue of sin should be brought forth 
publicly for them to be held accountable. Obviously, this isn't every single sin. Otherwise, our church would be rebuking me every single day, right? I mean, we would never get to the sermon on Sunday because you'd be rebuking me all day on Sunday because I sin. And I, I probably sin a lot. <laughs> but, but this is talking about breaches of trust to the congregation that the elder is called to lead and he's publicly out there sinning and he needs to be rebuked publicly. Private conflict should be handled privately. Personal offenses should be handled on an individual level. But sin that betrays the congregation that that elder or pastor is called to protect warrants a public rebuke, if serious enough, and even removal from office, if absolutely serious enough. Let's move on. I felt I had to add that because we're talking about how we handle conflict. And sometimes there's conflict with elders and pastors and how we should be handling that. What if we're dealing with legal conflict? i got to hurry. What if we're dealing with legal conflict? What I'm going to quickly address here is, is uh, establish whether this is civil or, or um, criminal. And we respond based upon whether it's civil conflict or criminal conflict. So, first, if it's civil, first seek resolution personally, then go to the church leaders, and the last resort is litigation, which is what we read there in Matthew 18. The church at Corinth, they're bickering, they're uh, uh, taking one another to court uh, in front of unbelievers for all kinds of stuff, and Paul rebukes them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He asks this question in verse 7, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? So if you are considering suing another believer, perhaps you should ask, will going to court against a fellow believer actually glorify God? Will it help or hinder the furtherance of the gospel? Will it help or hinder being reconciled with my brother or sister in Christ? And if you cannot resolve the dispute in private, then maybe you need to take it to church leaders or Christian arbitrators. And sometimes the offending person uh, goes to another church where the leaders aren't going to get involved and they're not going to exercise church discipline. What do you do then? Let me be clear. Not everyone agrees with me on what I'm about to say, and that's okay. But I believe if all avenues of Christian mediation have been exhausted, there are times when it is permissible for a believer to take legal action against another person who claims to be a believer, but who is denying that claim with how they are living. Let me give you an example. A businessman is to be paid what he's owed to keep his business operational. And he may need to sue someone that's defrauded him. But let's say someone needs a financial recompense and, and that they can, uh, so they can provide for their family. They can use the courts if need be. Or if someone sees a pattern of greed and dishonesty on the part of one who wronged them, and to let the offender just continue to go on and do nothing about it will hurt other people. It might be, uh, it might be right to take that person to court. However, in all of these cases, you're not, you got to make sure that you're not being greedy and seeking revenge in every single one of them. You, you say, well, what is my motive? Am I, am I just being greedy because, oh, I think I could get a, you know, I think I'd get a million dollars off of this or something like that? That's not your goal. It's your goal to restore the brother or sister reconciliation. If it's criminal. What do we do if it's criminal? If it's criminal, immediately bring in governmental 
authorities to carry out justice and protect others. When something is criminal, it's not a matter for the church. It's not. God has provided civil government to uphold the laws to protect the innocent and the punishment of evil doers. Romans 13, 1-7 makes that abundantly clear. Christian institutions and churches have gotten themselves in trouble for trying to handle criminal issues on their own. If someone molests a child to protect other children, that person needs to be brought to justice immediately. We don't launch a church investigation like, oh, we gotta find out if they really did do this or not. No. You immediately call authorities. If a Christian's been embezzling money, they need to make full restitution to those they've wronged. If the husband's abusing his wife or children, he needs to face the penalty of the law. If a man rapes a woman, he needs to go to prison for the protection of other women. Unfortunately, we've had Southern Baptist seminaries even that when an accusation of rape was leveled, they, they said, well, we'll launch an internal investigation. No, you don't. You get the authorities involved immediately. Forgiving and loving a criminal does not mean that they should not pay for the crime. I'm not sure where that idea started, but it seems to run rampant in Christian circles. Oh, well, they, we, just need to, we just need to show them grace. They don't need to pay for the crime. Yeah, they do. That's why God has given us civil authorities. So please, if something's criminal, don't mess around. i got to quickly move on. Number three, if you are intentionally wrong, Unintentionally wrong, sorry. It's wrong in your notes, by the way. If you are unintentionally wrong, decide whether to absorb it or talk to them. If you are unintentionally wrong, decide whether you're going to absorb it or talk to them. So another believer has unintentionally wronged you. What should you do? Just like with the intentional wrong, first you look to Christ. Make sure you have a desire to glorify and please Him. Then you look to self and ask yourself if you're being overly sensitive or critical in this situation. Ask yourself if it's possible that, that you have mistakenly assumed the wrong motive in that person that offended you. I find this happens all the time where, where we, we imply a motive on that person they, and they had no motive. And if this is a minor offense, ask, was this a deliberate sin against me? Or was this spiritual immaturity or human imperfection on the person's part? And so sometimes people are insensitive to our feelings. They just are. Or they respond sarcastically. I'm the king of sarcasm. I do this all the time. And I, sometimes I don't even know I'm doing it. I'm so sarcastic. I just bloop. And then my wife will be like, uh, yeah, you probably shouldn't have said that. Hopefully she's not listening right now. But anyway. <laughs> Were you wrong? Yes. But is it something you have to confront or can you just absorb it? I don't know how many times someone has left a church, they get bent out of shape because they weren't noticed. Or maybe the pastor didn't shake their hand, didn't meet their expectation. And oftentimes people don't realize that they're slighting someone else. And rather than go and talk to that person, right, the, the person is like, well, I'm done. I'm leaving the church. That pastor, he doesn't care about me. He didn't shake my hand. And they leave. 
Here's what I want to say. If an unintentional offense is hindering your relationship with another person, or you think it represents a pattern of habitual behavior that's also hurting others and not glorifying God, or it's a blind spot in this person's life, then, then go to them. Then go to them. The loving thing to do is to talk to them and try to help them grow in Christ. That's what I'd want somebody to do to me. I'd want them to say, hey, you, you shouldn't have... That was offensive. That's okay. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. Moving on. What if you wrong someone? What do we do? We ask God for forgiveness. And then we ask the person for forgiveness. So what happens when we wrong someone else is we, we often allow pride to prevent us from, what's, from doing what's right. If we wrong someone and we think through exactly what, what did I do that, that wronged them, don't blame them or attack them. Even if you think that they are mostly at fault. I like what they say in resolving everyday conflict. Even if I'm only 2% responsible for a conflict, I'm 100% responsible for my 2%. It's important to use the right wording when you ask someone to forgive you for what you've done. Don't make your sin small. We have a tendency to do that, right? Make our sin small. Well, if I was wrong, please forgive me. You see how you made your sin small? Don't say things like, well, I'm sorry I lost my temper, but it makes me angry when you... You see how you just made your sin small? Now it's their fault that you're angry. When we say things like that, we're, we're blaming them for our sin. Not taking responsibility. We should say, God has convicted me of my sin and how I treated you or how I spoke or of my anger and I know I've wronged you and I've asked God to forgive, to forgive me and I've come to ask you if you will forgive me. We should assure the one that, we've, that, we're, that we're talking to, that we've offended, that we're working to not repeat the offense and ask them for the prayer. It's what we should be doing. Lastly, I'm almost out of time. Sorry. Lastly, I want to see what to do when someone you know has been wronged. What do we do? Don't listen to one side only. Direct the offended to follow the steps in this message. So what happens when a friend or a loved one comes to you and they talk to you about how another person wronged you? Right? Our first response is to rush to their defense. Like if my wife comes to me and says somebody wronged her, my first response is to rush to her defense. I want to get on the phone. I want to call someone. I want to, I'm going to tell that person exactly what I think. And that's, that's our first response typically when somebody we love and care about or a friend. I don't like it when a friend or loved one gets wrong. But I challenge you to make sure that you hear the other side before you rush to judgment. Proverbs 18, 17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Right? When someone comes and tells you how they were wrong, ask them, have you gone directly to that person? That often stops everything in its tracks. Have you gone directly to that person that wronged you and have you sought reconciliation? Have you talked to others besides me about this offense? And if they have talked to others, they need to be strongly encouraged not to talk to anyone else because they are gossiping. Explain the steps covered in this message. 
and encourage them to resolve the conflict in a biblical manner. Tell them to go to the offending party. When we allow gossip to happen within our church, when we allow people to go and, and flap their jaws about everybody else, it will only bring destruction. I want to conclude by saying I'm not so naive to think that only Christians want to resolve personal conflict, but I'd say this. This message primarily applies to the believer because it's given us a biblical instruction on how to handle personal conflict. And to be honest, it's hard to want to resolve conflict biblically if you're not a believer. And so this morning I want to just let you know that the greatest conflict that you have if you're not a believer is with God. Because you've never trusted in His Christ as your Savior. And if you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, then you've never been reconciled to God. And we will spend eternity in hell. So let me tell you how it is that you can be reconciled to God. You must trust in Christ as your Savior. And you can express that through a prayer. It's simple. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's Son and died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. Amen. It's not magic. It's your trust in Christ that saves you. It's not a special prayer. Just trusting in Christ is what saves you. If you said that prayer or a prayer like it, or you want to know more about that, would you text the word FAITH to 309-328-3488 from your smartphone? Just text the word FAITH to 309-328-3488. It'll automatically follow up with you. If you want to have a conversation with me, you can just text to that number and I'll try to try to respond back to you. Now what do you do if nothing brings resolution? We live in a fallen world. Sometimes reconciliation just isn't possible. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If possible. Sometimes it's not possible. In those situations, pray for the offender. Don't pray about them to everyone else. Just pray for them. And move on with growing in Christ and serving Him. But for the sake of the gospel, do all you can to resolve personal conflict in a way that brings honor to the Lord and restores the damaged relationship. After all, let us not forget it is the second greatest commandment. So let me ask you this morning. Are you working to resolve conflict biblically in a way that honors and glorifies Christ for the sake of the gospel? Or are you not? Let's do it right. And God will honor it. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. For this word. It's not always easy. But Lord, I know this is the message that you gave weeks ago. So I wrote down the title, put down the scripture references, and began to think about personal conflict. 
And so, Lord, we just ask that if you've spoken to anyone this morning, whether it's online or maybe they'll watch this message later and they'll have a chance to respond through text message. Or maybe they're maybe they're here this morning and they need to deal with something, whether it's through prayer or maybe they maybe they have to go to someone this morning. Make things right. Seek reconciliation. Lord, if we're in the midst of conflict where we're handling it inappropriately, inappropriately, God, I pray that you would break us this morning. Break our hearts. Lord, reveal to us that we will never be a blessed church. We will never advance the gospel in your kingdom as long as we conflict unresolved. And so, Lord, maybe there's people that have done the same thing for years. They've never done it right. Did you break them this morning? Did you teach us through your word how it is that we're to respond? May we be a lighthouse in our community of the gospel. May people look inside and say, they do it right. They do it biblically. They do it how God's word says to do. If you've spoken to us, I pray that we respond. I pray this in Jesus' name. And then as we sing, if you do willing to come, I'll be standing down front if you need to. If you don't want to, you can talk to me later if you want to stay socially distant.